It's the SNL Hall of Fame Podcast. With your host, Jamie Dew. Chief Librarian, Thomas Senna. And featuring Matt Ardill. And now, Curator of the Hall, Jamie Dew. Hey there, thank you so much. And please wipe your feet before entering the SNL Hall of Fame. We've got a, an image to uphold here, and we got to keep this place spick and span, which is precisely the phrase that uh, prompted me to order this, this great uh, pop filter. <laughs> spick and span. Oh, my goodness gracious. I hope you're doing well. I hope everyone is, uh, you know, bundled up tightly as we roll into this holiday season and it gets a little colder wherever you are, uh, or maybe it's getting warmer if you're on the flip side. I, I, I don't know, uh, but it is getting colder where I am and uh, grayer and uh, more difficult to uh, persevere with the days, but here I am persevering with you, and uh, I cannot wait because we've got a major announcement to make. We've got a major announcement to make. On January 9th, we will announce our 15th nominee to the SNL Hall of Fame. And on January 10th, we will open voting for those first 15 nominees along with the holdovers from last year. That's right. We're breaking down voting into two halves this year. Slightly different than the way we did it last year. But uh, nevertheless, it will get the job done. You will be voting on the 15 nominees and the holdovers. It's going to be exciting. Voting will run through to February 10th. So you'll have a whole month to vote. Now, what does this mean for you? Well, this means you need to make sure that you are registered to vote. You can do this really easily. You can click on any of the links that I tweet out, Instagram out, uh, Reddit out, uh, Facebook out, or you can go to the website snlhof.com and there's an easy way to register to vote there. You just click on the voting tab and you'll be prompted to register to vote. Once you do so, you'll have access to uh, the nominee guide and uh, you can start planning out your strategy, how, how you will cast your votes this year. I hope you've been playing along at home though, so far and, and, and have a good idea of what you'll do. But it's going to be, uh, you're going to be thrown for a loop with those holdovers, I, I'm sure. But we've got to get some of those writers in. We've got to get some of those writers in and, and the musical guests. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if that comes to fruition or not. But that is the major news announcement. February 10th, voting ends. January 10th, voting opens. Make sure you're registered to vote beforehand. And um, yeah, that's what I've got to say about that. Coming up in the next segment, we'll hear from Thomas Senna as he meets with Maddie Price, and they have a great conversation about our next nominee, and that's Candace Bergen. But before that, we have to hear from our friend Matt in his minutiae minute. Hey, Matt, how you doing? Hey, good, thanks. And yourself? 
Uh, I'm I'm uh, I'm excellent, actually. It's yes. Awesome. Yeah, uh, Candace Bergen, Hollywood and entertainment royalty. Uh, she was uh, born in. May, on May 9th, 1946, her first time hosting was November 8th, 1975. So she goes back to the start. She is the first woman to host the, so, the show. Uh, so she got to play alongside the original cast. Uh, she uh, hosted five times and is one of the earliest five-timers. Uh, her fifth time hosting was May 19th, 1990 in season 20, along with the Dana Carvey, Victoria Jackson, Mike Myers. Um, so she, her most recent appearance uh, was February 26, uh, 2022, uh, where she helped induct John Mulaney into the five-timer club. Uh, right. So, yeah. So she is, you know, she's one of those people who was so entwined in those early days, it, like her and Steve Martin, they almost felt like a part of the SNL family. In a lot of ways, uh, a lot of the really iconic sketches of those early days are sketches that she was in. Um, like my favorite two um, from those early days are Third World Interview and uh, and then Extremely uh, Stupid, uh, where you could watch Gilda just like she's like Candace broke. She just broke hard, and Gilda just kept rolling like a total pro uh or and personally my absolute favorite this is is consumer probe with erwin mainway um it's just a classic you've got dan Aykroyd at its peak dan Aykroyd, and you have candace playing it totally straight um you know like i mean and i want a johnny switchblade no, who doesn't want a Johnny Switchblade? You know, right. Sometimes Barbie gets stabbed. That's you know, it happens. <laughs> um, now she she said uh, that it, her fir- her first appearance on SNL was like being shot out of a cannon. Uh, it's the Bet pure, it was. yeah, the cocaine filled cannon. A cocaine filled cannon. Uh, yeah, it's the purest, most exhilarating serum of terror. Again, cocaine. Um, now, like I said, her she's. Hollywood royalty. Her father was ventriloquist Edgar Bergen, uh, who uh, had popular dummies uh, Charlie McCarthy and Mortimer Snurd, featured in a lot of like 30s, 40s, 50s movies. Um, she auditioned at age nine to be one of the original Mouseketeers. Didn't make it, even though her dad was friends with Walt. Um, but yeah, I mean, she she's appeared on The Muppet Show along with her father, and it's actually the only father-daughter uh, pair to ever both appear on the Muppet show. Uh, so she has a real, uh, history That's in Hollywood. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, her, she was, she beat her dad. She was on the, on, on Muppet, the Muppet show and her dad was on the Muppet show the next season. So yeah. Um, but she, I mean, and the, the interesting thing is, you know, that, that interview sketch, people are like, oh, why would Candace Bergen be Candace Bergen doing an interview? Well, it's because she was a journalist. She was a photojournalist and a political journalist who did actual interviews out in the in different troubled areas around the world uh, and uh, won awards for it. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, know. so... She's a really interesting person. She worked as a photographer. Uh, she worked, like I said, a journalist. She's written novels. She's written a play. Um, she's a lifelong activist. 
weirdly dated Donald Trump. Um, uh, she said like he showed up dressed in a three-piece suit, burgundy patent leather loafers, driving a burgundy limousine. Uh, the date was in- uneventful, and there was no physical contact. So she is very clear about how she feels on Mr. Trump. Uh, but yeah, she she's a really interesting character, um, and and a, I think a very worthy addition to the SNL Hall of Fame. Uh, she, she has a lot of legacy and a lot of connections to the very foundations of the show. Thank you so much, Jamie. Yes, I'm joined by Maddie Price to discuss the wonderful Candace Candy Bergen. Maddie, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for uh, bringing me back. Yeah, yeah, no problem. Yeah, season one, you uh, you did. I know you did the Gilda Radner episode, which I was a I huge did. fan of. Yes. Uh, did you do any other episodes, or was it just Gilda in season one? No, I feel like I did three of them. <laughs> I don't know how many others. <laughs> have aired we did them all in a in one sitting and then they got chopped up so <laughs> i feel like i did randy newman for musical guest yeah yeah uh that might have already happened i don't know yeah well you yeah. were a good luck charm with with gilda because she made the snl hall of fame she was part of that damn right uh, she did damn right she did <laughs> she was part of that season one class so great work on stating your case for gilda radner <laughs> that was great i'm and, gonna and- take zero zero credit <laughs> We'll give most of the credit to Gilda herself, I think. You take a look at her work, it speaks for itself. Yeah, yeah. definitely. (laughs) So today we're talking about Candace Bergen. And there is a tie-in that we'll probably get to with uh, with Gilda Radner there. So a little kind of season one and season two synergy here on the podcast. But as far as Candace goes, so other than hosting SNL, I only really know Candace Bergen thoroughly from her time on Murphy Brown. I think a lot of people our age and, and younger and even older, they're not super aware of Candace Bergen. And there's no, uh, there's no reason that they should be. She is very much up until Murphy Brown. I think she was very much a person who was famous for being famous. You know, her father was probably, or, or no, I will say he was definitively the most popular entertainment figure on the planet for a little while there. So she was born into a very famous family. Um, and for listeners that don't know, her father was Edgar Bergen, who Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy was famously a uh, ventriloquist who was a, and this is my absolute favorite thing about show business. He was a ventriloquist on the radio. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> How can you tell if his lips are moving? Right. Yeah, so, no <laughs> that's hilarious. But that's really, you know, he's in a few movies and stuff, but really he was like, he was like a popular radio personality and very, and considered very funny at the time. And certainly like in terms of scripting, ventriloquism bits you know he's the first person to break through into kind of a more naturalistic style where he plays the straight man and the joke is not just that he's making the dummy talk but that actually there are real jokes in there and he he created that dynamic of the dummy hating the guy operating him 
and being mean, being mean to him, which is sort of like the standard ventriloquism thing, right? Right. Um, and got very famous and very rich doing that. And so she was, you know, their daughter, and he referred to her as the dummy's younger sister. And she was not uh, a super happy child, from what I'm led to believe, because, you know, he's, he was not maybe like the most uh, present father. And so she grew up in this sort of like famous bubble, hot Beverly Hills, Hollywood. And she was a model. And she was on a lot of fashion magazines starting in the, I think, the late 60s, wanted to transition to acting. And I think up until the time she did SNL, again, she's pretty famous for being famous. She had been in some movies. I particularly like a movie from the early 70s called Soldier Blue, which is like a very, very critical Western about basically like a revisionist Western about how badly Native Americans were treated in the frontier. And and uh, it was a flop as a result, at least in North America. But she's very good in it and, and quite funny, actually. And um, you can tell that like there's a lot more going on there than just somebody who is pretty and getting on magazine covers if that makes sense yeah yeah that definitely makes sense so it was maybe a little bit of uh i'm gonna say risk but maybe on lauren's part to ask somebody like candace bergen to, to host she hosted the fourth show of season one yeah. so she was on the ground floor in that so would you say lauren Mitt took a chance by by bringing candy on in my opinion no but i'll I, there i think there's a few dimensions to that but here's okay so look let, before we go on I want to clear out the elephant in the room. Nobody listening to this show is like, here's a serious contender for the hall. <laughs> <laughs> like, I yeah, understand. <laughs> like I understand, but here's, let's just, let's just lay out some numbers and some facts just to like, get it out of the way to say, like, here's some stuff that maybe gives her, puts her back in the running. First woman to host the show. First person to host more than once. First woman in the five timers club. And I think, with good reason. So my my own speculation about her hosting that fourth show is if you actually watch that fourth show, or especially really like the first, I would say, almost all of the first season of SNL, they totally don't know what kind of show it is yet. Mm-hmm. Right? Like they really are not sure. And I think for the most part with the hosts, they haven't quite gravitated to that place where the host's job is to sit in the writer's room and help them shape material for comedy and then go out and perform that comedy, which is what that show is now, right? I think it really was viewed as more like a pretty regular variety show hosting gig. Carlin's host on the first one is not particularly involved with anything that the Not Ready for Primetime players are doing. He's just hosting a variety show. She is just hosting a variety show. She's in some sketches, because that's what the host of a variety show is supposed to do. But she, and I think pretty smartly, in the first few seasons that she was on the show, she really played the straight man in Mm -hmm. all her sketches, which is exactly what her father did. Her persona, just like his, is just to be the thing that the crazy people are reacting against. So, like, her best sketch is the Irving Mainway sketch, which is the, uh, you know, the guy that makes the very dangerous toys for children. <laughs> so she's she's the host of that show, that, like, consumer probe show, where she's like, really, a big bag of glass? That's a toy? You're going to hurt somebody. 
you know, and like she's really good at like not bra- and not like drawing into the the nuttiness and letting it just kind of play off of her, right? Yeah, I can um, tell she understands the comedy behind playing that yeah, role. Yeah, like she doesn't. Yeah, she need knows to exactly be. what she's supposed to do. Exactly, yeah. it's yeah. not like she's just kind of going through the motions and saying the lines and trusting the writers. I can tell that she's confident in the material and yeah. her role in making it comedic. Yeah. So I, my feeling is that as a person who was famous for being famous and Lauren Michaels was already pretty well connected to celebrities, I think they were probably just friends mm-hmm. on some level. And she did the show because he needed hosts, right? And if you look at the hosts until he land, pretty much until he lands Buck Henry, he doesn't really know what to do with the hosts. He just knows they have to have one. Yeah, they're like traffic and cops. In a, in a kind of, yeah, like Richard Pryor, I think, made big inroads into figuring out how a host could be in the show, which is the one that happened right before her second appearance. She also, oh, another thing for the Hall of Fame, she hosted the very first and the second Christmas episodes. Yeah, yeah, she became which kind, is kind of, of the, a big deal, right? The, the she was the Christmas for the, episode late for the first couple yeah. seasons. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, I think I think that's all kind of swirling in the air. They're just looking for someone who can traffic cop as you say like deal with like pushing things around and making sure they're like a friendly face her monologues in the first set of shows the first three shows they're not very like they're fine Mm -hmm. they're just kind of like here's the show we're about to present to you they're really standard monologues they're not heavy on jokes they're not really what we think of as the monologue because again i don't think they really like first of all they didn't have a writer who just wrote monologues the way they do now right but like they just they don't you know she's just there to say like here's the show. We're going to show you some stuff. And by the way, these are musical guests and, you know, let me just make sure we get through this to the end. For sure. And she, so she hosted her first stint was November 8th, 1975. As we mentioned, that was season one, episode four. And even though that was more of a, you're right. Like the, the host had a different role back then. It was more of a variety show. One thing stood out to me, Though, as far as her personality and seeing that how how she meshed with the original cast was a spot that she did with Gilda, where they just sat the thing down where they're sitting together and they, yes. and they talk about yeah. femininity. And I, I thought that was yeah. really neat. That's not something that SNL always does. I mean, I remember even over the last thirty plus years since I've been watching the show, Dolly Parton did something like that, but they never really go to that well. No. And I think I thought that was a really neat to see the chemistry between she and Gilda. And really amazing to see them just be themselves and realize that, like, this is a compelling conversation, even though it's really not a bit or a comp. There's no punchline here. It's not. Yeah. And actually, also, jokes. there's like kidding yeah, around yeah. and stuff, but yeah. you're right. But it's really like hanging out with them at a party or something. Well, just tell me something. Have you ever had a guy ask you out on a date over the phone and then he shows up at the door and he goes away, doesn't want to take you out at all after he takes <laughs> one look at you? No. Oh, but I've had him not call back. Oh, this is the happiest day in my life. <laughs> uh, well, what, what, tell me what else goes wrong for you. I love it. Well, here's when I feel awkward. I feel awkward around these new little skinny guys. You know, yeah. the little tiny ones with the body shirts and the long silky hair. Right. The ones you could break in half. Right, and when you sit next to them in the back of a car, you look down and you notice that your thigh is twice the size of theirs. <laughs> And I think it's interesting because it's obviously set against the backdrop of them having just lost the ERA vote. And there's a really good line in that little conversation where they, she asked Gilda if she voted for ERA. Gilda said, no, I was working. I couldn't vote. But it's okay because what did she say that that's crazy misconception? Oh, she said, I don't know if I could be in a bathroom if a guy came into the stall beside me. 
as if that's what the Equal Rights Amendment was supposed to <laughs> was supposed <laughs> right. Yeah. So there like, was a little bit of character work, like subtle character work in there, still probably like an yeah. exaggerated version of herself <laughs> or both yeah. of them in yeah. that conversation. Yeah, but it's really remarkable. Yeah, it's the standout thing from that episode for sure. She does have a little bit in uh, the the land shark sketch as well that i she she closed the land shark sketch which i thought i thought was pretty right. neat but uh, i think that was just overall what that showed to me was you know they loved her as a host she got along with the cast and that the proof was in the pudding because episode eight <laughs> she's back yeah so the original host of episode eight had to bow out at the last minute i can't remember who it was and so it was like a last minute fill in but she's the one they went to and i think it's really because they just liked her they liked having her around and she liked them. And she described in her monologue, she describes the show as her Christmas present to herself. Yeah, that's right. Right. Which is kind of like a super nice way to think about it. Like she talked about it in the later two episodes in the, in the eighties when she was on with the sort of Dennis Miller uh, and then Mike Myers casts season 13 and 15. She said that SNL was the show that allowed her to be funny which I think is really, really interesting. So if you look at it in the context of her sort of coming into her own with Murphy Brown and becoming like truly a household comedic icon, I would say for the time on the level of somebody like Mary Tyler Moore or, you know, Lucille Ball, like a really like the female comedy sitcom person for that period of time. I do think that SNL plays a part in that and sort of giving her that confidence to be able to take that on. Right. Yeah. And she's also, she's, she's visibly um, much better in those later episodes. She gets way more interesting stuff to do and she's way better at doing it. Yeah. That's what's that's something I noted too. I, we talked about her two hosting stints in season one. She got a little more to do in that second episode, but I, I wanted to highlight in those early stints that Christmas episode in season two, that was in December of 76. And that for SNL geeks who keep track of such things, I think that's considered one of, honestly, one of the best episodes of that era, and maybe one of the better episodes the show has seen <laughs> in its history. You had some classic sketches, yeah. Yeah. and she had a lot to do. So, uh, yeah, I wanted to kind of talk a little bit about her third hosting stint, which was, again, was that Christmas episode in 1976. Um, I had some stuff highlighted, but do you, uh, anything pop out to you from that one? I think that's the one with the Irving Mainway sketch, which is, which is cer it's certainly, it's a, like for that era, it's top five sketch for me. I think it's, you know, especially um, Johnny Switchblade, which I think is maybe like one of the funniest visual gags, <laughs> prop gags ever on the show. Just the yeah. way the blades pop out and how little they are and how goofy it looks. Like, I just, I love it. And what about this innocent rubber doll, which you market under the name Johnny Switchblade? <laughs> Press his head. And two sharp knives spring from his arms. <laughs> Mr. Mainway, I'm afraid this is by no means a safe toy. Okay, I'm just, I'm just want to correct you on one thing here, okay? First of all, the full name of this product that appears in stores all over the country is uh, Johnny Switchblade Adventure Punk. <laughs> no, I mean, uh, you know, nothing goes wrong. These, these little girls buy them, you know, they play games, they make up stories, nobody gets hurt, you know, I mean... So uh, Barbie uh, takes a knife once in a while or can gets cut, you know? I mean, uh, there's no harm in it. I mean, as far as I can see, you know? I see. Fine, fine. Yes. I know in the bag of glass, too. and The bag of glass is great. I like what he tries to justify it by going, they could see rainbows in it. It's about refracted light. 
Yeah, and <laughs> kids pick up glass they, anyway. We're just giving them what they right. want. That's right. We're just giving them what the market wants. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. And you're right. You had brought up Candace, how she 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 was the straight person in those sketches. And the way she asked those questions and her reactions, her earnest reactions to Erwin Mainway, uh, that, that was just so perfect. Because you need, you need yeah. that balance. You definitely yeah, in balance. order for that character to work at all, he has to be being interviewed by a person who is deadpanning the whole way. It's, you know, that's a that's such a good dynamic. That, yeah. yeah. She actually had a really famous moment with Gilda Radner in the Right to Extreme Stupidity League. Yes, where she blows it, and it's very fun. Hey, this milk isn't too good. I'm still thirsty. Well, that's because you poured it in your purse, you see. Oh, you're not too bright, are you, Fern? I mean, whatever your name was. Lisa! As a matter of fact, you're extremely stupid. Well, you're right, Fern, you know, and I'm proud of it. You know, we all can't be brainy like Fern here. Yeah, it was like a classic line flub, <laughs> and they both handle and, it really well. And that's one of the first instances, like an early famous example of breaking on the show. Is it right? Yeah, because and also the way she breaks is so generous. She's laughing so hard at Gilda through the whole sketch, just so amused by how she's sort of pulling it off. Like you can see her sitting on the couch, just really enjoying the sketch while she's in it. But yeah, she she flubs her line. She calls Gilda's character her character's name. And the sketch is about people who are irretrievably stupid. <laughs> right. And so Gilda's response is basically to say, no, 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 your name is Fern. Maybe you're the one that needs help. Yeah. yeah. She <laughs> yeah. said, we can't all be brainy like Fern here, which I think was probably part, part right. of the script, but it worked. It worked. So it was like what, a flub that, that uh, was accidentally meta <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because exactly. of what the sketch yeah. was. That yeah. 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 That was great. And I think, yeah, you said Candace was so good natured about about that. I mean, she she tried to hide yeah. it, but kind of barely. She <laughs> she just the, let the, the moment one wash last, over her. The one last first that she has, which I do, and I'm not sure which show it's in. It might be in the Christmas one, but it's I think it is actually in that second Christmas one. I think she's the first host to have the whole cast come out to say the goodbyes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't know. Which I actually think episode, that's, yeah. but I actually think that's really a kind of a cool thing about her that she would have said, well, I'm not just going to wave goodbye myself. We all did it. Let's all go out on stage. And it just shows like what a, like a genuinely like nice, lovely sort of person she was to do that. Right. I'm sure that nobody told her to do it. It sounds like it, like it would have been just an organic thing. And it's become like one of the nicest sort of traditions of the show is that it's at the end. You're like, Oh man, it took a lot of people to make this. This is pretty good. She had love for the cast. She respected them. She yeah. loved working with them. So, so yeah, that, that was, that, that was so cool. This, I think is, this is not a Candace Bergen thing, but my other favorite thing about that second, that season two Christmas show mm -hmm. is that the musical guest is Frank Zappa, which has to be the worst <laughs> idea for Christmas music guest that I have ever heard because <laughs> so weird. not only did not only do they have him, but his songs are like, they are lengthy. There's one that's like eight minutes long or something. And I was like, what is this? How, who is sitting on a, you know, the night before the, the, the Saturday before Christmas going like, yes, I need this in my life. This yeah. I need a, 
I need to watch slime come out of the TV monitors. Yeah, yeah. Just yeah. yeah, that was that was that <laughs> that was an interesting performance there by Frank Zappa. He appeared in a sketch too, uh in the Killer That's right. Tree he, sketch. He, in, the, yeah. in the Killer Tree sketch, yes. Yeah. Which Tan- also she's very good. She's very good in Deadpan in that sketch, which is sort of like a dragnet. There's also a really good bit at the beginning where they sort of send up Casablanca for her monologue, which I thought was really sweet. And uh and Belushi is made up to look like Bogart, and suddenly I was like, Holy shit, he really looks like him. It's yeah, really yeah. effective. Whatever they did, he looks thinner. I think he actually probably was thinner because of all the coke. Uh, he probably at that point he's probably at his thinnest that he was at in the show. Um, but yeah, he pulls off that Bogart swagger in that sketch. It's actually really good. That was a good monologue. I think that was Candace's first kind of not cookie cutter sort of monologue. So this yeah. one was she wouldn't come out of the dressing room because of Belushi. Right, it's a fourth wall breaking. They mm-hmm. go backstage and and try to get her out, and it's because. She's in love with Belushi and can't quit him. Yeah. And he's and he's ignoring her. And part of the and it's a sketch that Lauren is in. I think it's one of the earliest ones that Lauren was in. And he's basically like, I can't understand how Belushi keeps doing this to all the women. And it's part of this running gag that like this like pretty, you know, uh let's call him uh fat. Let's call him fat. He was uh <laughs> he was a fat guy and maybe like not traditionally attractive. Uh, was somehow the one that every woman swooned over. They did the same joke in Blues Brothers. It's like it's it's sort of like a definitely a running thing for Belushi to be like like have this like you know Svengali like hold on beautiful women that no one could quite figure out because it is funny to think about, right? Yeah, super fun monologue. Uh, I want to go back to that Killer Trees sketch because I think that showed that was just such good melodramatic acting from Candace while she was describing the tree that killed Gilda's character in the yes. sketch. Candace just really played up that melodrama, but for laughs. Just calm down here, all right? Calm down and describe the killer to our police artist here, Sergeant Nagy. Try to describe it now. Was he tall, short? Yeah, he was very tall. He was so tall and really bushy, very bushy, with a lot of really neat ornaments. Oh God! You could tell that she really understand the comedy behind what she was saying. She knew how to play it up. She knew the right beats to hit. She really impressed me in that killer trick sketch. It's also for the for those early seasons. It's a pretty strong sketch conceptually. Like it has a really good through line. It actually has a beginning, middle, and end. The story, the story sort of holds up as a like a as a vehicle for the comedy, which is that there are all the Christmas trees are sentient and they're murdering people, and they you know they go through that section where where they're like, let's get the police sketch artist to draw the Christmas tree, which is like the <laughs> such a good dumb idea. And the Frank Zappa cameo is that there's two Christmas trees and Frank Zappa in a police lineup, and she has to pick out. The Christmas tree, and she's like, they all look alike to me. I can't tell. <laughs> Calling for saying Frank Zappa looked like a Christmas tree. Yes, that was yes, yeah, that, yeah. That was a great bit. So, so yeah, that that was for the listeners. That was season two, episode ten. And I want to run this down again because it's just a like a classic episode. You had a great monologue. You had the Santee rap, which Candace was not in, but that was kind of a Dan Aykroyd pitch man sort of short thing. You had the Irwin Mainway. That was the debut of that character. The Right to Extreme Stupidity yeah. League, The Killer Trees. There was also a, a song that Candace did the introduction to, Let's Kill Gary Gilmore for Christmas. So it was all the stuff that people remember yes. wrapped up into one episode. Really classic episode. 
it's not the one that has the um the char house right that the one where you kill your own steer I believe that, that was the first that was the christmas episode from season one i believe okay. that the, yeah. with dan Aykroyd and yeah. gilda yeah that's one of the first ones where where danny just goes a mile a minute <laughs> in the talking and it's like that's the point of the sketch it's just how fast can he deliver the material in that santi rap yeah. one too in the in in this christmas episode from season two that's what that one is too just let's just pull danny's string and let him go <laughs> yeah what was really interesting was then seeing the ones that she did during the Murphy Brown era for me. Yeah. I was like, yeah. I want to talk about those ones. So it's clear right away. I think that she's all that she's immediately more comfortable and better. Cause there's one of them is a uh, Thanksgiving episode as opposed to Christmas. I think it's the first time she came back season 13. Yes. And they wrote her or and maybe she helped this excellent monologue that she delivered super well where she talks about having a pet turkey growing up. I could have had a dog, or a cat, or even a pony, but my turkey Larry was the best pet a girl could ever have. He let me dress him up in doll's clothes. He would fetch. He could dance. Well, not really. I would hold up his wings and pull him around the room to music. He would sit at the dinner table and follow the conversation. Once I saw him pull a man from a burning car. I would still have him today, but one Thanksgiving I overheard our cook saying how we wouldn't have to buy a turkey this year with Larry around. That monologue is deranged, and she and she delivers it perfectly, and it's really funny. And it's not just funny for uh, for her; it's genuinely like a killer monologue. And I just like I think it's well worth checking out as kind of like an example of where she sort of got to as a performer. Yeah, I agree. One of the big notes that I had, uh, and we'll go into why, but. Her fourth episode specifically, that was November of 87, that was actually my favorite of her hosting gigs because of like what you yeah, said. She was yeah. doing more heavy lifting in the sketches. She was more seemed more comfortable. But the but then that was just in a period of the show where they just had the host do more just kind of in general, um, where there's more emphasis. Well on you the could host. you could tell right away that yeah, it's it's a much smoother running machine by the time she came back. The the really interesting thing is I actually think the sketch the Sydney Biddlebarrows first Thanksgiving sketch where she's decided that the, like that the real story of the first Thanksgiving is that she's running a brothel. Yes. Yes. Uh, uh-huh. And, and uh, she's very good in it. And it's again, like, Oh, there's a lot more to do and this is good. And then that sketch is almost shockingly offensive in almost every way that you could imagine. Yeah. It doesn't it's hold up. actually hard to watch. It's so bad. It's so kind of gross about, the sort of white people playing native americans calling them indians every stereotype hits the wall it's like even for the time i was like this is impressively offensive and this was (laughs) none of it is her fault but like this was 35 years ago (laughs) yeah 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 but still it was you know 1987 like it was not 1937 right like i'm like guys this is come on jesus I mean, I guess that sometimes, yeah, sometimes that era of SNL, especially uh, as it relates to different races that some of the cast members would play in sketches, um, even at the time, it was kind of, it's kind of weird, but it it's was still dicey. somewhat, it's yeah. dicey, but it was still somewhat accepted in comedy. Um, nowadays, for good reason, that wouldn't fly. I think it just, it's just a bit of a, like a, a, a content warning for anybody that wants to watch that episode now, like be prepared. That is, it is not cool. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's not cool. Yeah, and it was sort of a take on a real life yeah. event. Um, this lady who was called the Mayflower Madam. Um, yes, back then, who was? Uh, yeah, she was. She was a a patrician descendant of the original pilgrims who had who had run a, a very successful escort service out of uh, I think out of New York City, right? And had been discovered, and so it was a big cause celeb. Something that from this episode that did hold up. That might be my favorite Candace sketch from all her times hosting. Can I guess? I know what you're going to say. Please, yeah, go ahead. Is it the the killing of Anne Boleyn? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. You want to? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Do you want to talk yeah. about that? That is a Python worthy sketch. It is a perfect sketch. I yes. say that it yes. is perfect, and not just because of the writing, but the performance as well. But it's such a good idea. And executed perfectly. And yeah. I don't want to talk. I don't really want to give away the spoilers of the sketch because it's <laughs> so good. But basically, it's the setup is that she's Anne Boleyn. Henry VIII has decided that he's had enough of her and is going to murder her. And famously, of course, that is what happened. But she's given a choice of how she would like the death to transpire. And the choice becomes increasingly complexified and increasingly ridiculous <laughs> the longer the sketch goes on and it genuinely is like such a good idea for a sketch yeah, like it's such a python sketch you that, that's yes. such, that's a great yeah. way to to describe that and that it was a rare it's like to me it was rare that candace got to play a goofier character in a sketch which this was i mean the delivery was still pretty straight but it was very goofy for candace the material she's got is the material really the actual goofy. material is yeah, really yeah. goofy and funny it's just yeah. great writing and i don't know i don't don't know who wrote this this seems like a jack handy kind of thing but i don't i can't confirm who wrote this sketch but it's just so clever i don't know, Phil Hartman, I'd love to know because, yeah well i yeah, yeah i need to uh yeah. i need to try who to else was a on the staff more. then who's um, who's in the writer's room at that point that might have been before i think maybe robert schmeigel was on by that point it was november of 87 that was before but conan, conan was i believe there. i don't think conan was yeah. there don't know if odenkirk was there jack andy like was there sketch. it feels okay. like it would be a it, conan sketch. it feels like conan or like something sam simon would write yeah like it's yeah, very definitely. smart right yes yeah, completely um, smart and she has a good back and forth with phil hartman so she gets to play with Phil Hartman He's and they so can they do yeah, snappy yeah. dialogue with each other. That impressed me that Candace just fit so well with Phil Hartman. I will say that I had a feeling it was going to be the one sketch that we both agreed on 100%. Yeah. It, it really is like, I think it's the one where when I was watching it today, my wife came up from downstairs and said, what are you laughing at? Because I was genuinely like cackling and laughing watching it. So Yeah, it's just so smart. And she appeared one other time. Her most recent <laughs> hosting gig was May 19th, 1990. She unofficially at that time entered the Five Timers Club. Right. So that was in season 15. Who, who actually christened? Was it Tom it Hanks? It was Tom Hanks. Who Five Timers? Yeah, the, the first official like kind of sketch revolving around a right. Five Timers thing and was Tom Hanks. Which she is in, right? She, She's in I that don't first think... Five Timers sketch. She's in the lounge. Is she sitting in the lounge? Yeah, I think she is. Okay. Yeah. She's definitely in the one where I think Drew Barrymore gets in because there's all the women who are in are in that one. Yeah, yeah, she's she's a she's, a, she's appeared in a, in a, in a few of them uh, since the last time she hosted. Um, I went back and watched all of these episodes, but something that I forgot about was that she was she played Garth's mom 
in Wayne's world. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That, that was uh, the mom that Wayne fantasizes about and everything. And uh, she was just so she, charming. She was like perfect in that role. I think what's really interesting about Candace Bergen is that she has managed out. She has managed her career really smartly to manage past what was essentially keeping her at this level of famous, but not talented famous, but not successful. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's like, and it's not because of like, oh, she did one thing and then one thing and one thing. It's obvious that she's a person that plugs away and chips away at it until she figures it out. Right. Murphy Brown, but then also like incredibly successful on Boston Legal, like has figured out how to move into like this sort of older matronly, whatever you want to call it, like phase of her career where she's now like a very senior person, but she's still showing up and stuff and, and quite smartly. And, and I just think like, you know, there's a happy, satisfied, well, like really person who really is comfortable in her own skin and really understands herself and probably like was on that path, even in that, you know, even that, that first episode that she did where she has that conversation with Gilda, it's pretty clear that she's like, she's not, she's like a together person, right? Yeah. Yeah. Has, has the right idea about her own, like weirdly beautiful good looks and is not like faced by it. And I just think she's an impressive human being. Yeah, absolutely. She's and she has that. She has confidence and she's authoritative. That's I think that's why she yeah. played Murphy Brown so well because that's what that character was. was an authoritative character trying to navigate this this television world, trying to navigate being like a newly single mother, all this stuff. And Candace played that so well. She has a sketch in her last episode that kind of played off of the the her Murphy Brown persona. Um, it's called She Does It All, where she was a boss who does like every task during a meeting. She makes the copies. She gives people yeah. the coffee. She leads the meeting. And she just plays that authoritative persona so well. Okay, yesterday I got a fax from our Paris distributor about an investment opportunity in Bond, but we'll have to move fast. I'd like to discuss it as soon as I'm done Xeroxing copies. <laughs> uh, Miss Powell, uh, perhaps I should get someone to do that. Oh, no, it's no problem. This will just take a few minutes. I know. It's just that your time is very valuable. Uh, shouldn't you delegate jobs like this to other people? <laughs> Tom, in case you're not aware, I'm a president of a multinational corporation with 400 people in my employ. I think I know a little something about delegating authority. <laughs> oh, damn. Angela! Oh, yes, Miss Powell, is there something I can do? Yes, the copier jammed. Call Xerox and tell them I'll bring it over in an hour. <laughs> and she appeared on the show in five-timer sketches you had mentioned she was in the jonah hill five-timer sketch with drew barrymore uh and tina fey uh appeared in that one too i love that one because she had a lot of candace had a lot of dialogue and that was sort of candace leading she wasn't just kind of sitting there while steve martin right <laughs> led the five dominated times, yeah, dominated yeah, yeah. the proceedings like yeah. candace is candace really driving that bus welcome to the five-timers club seth Oh, no, I'm not Seth Rogen. I'm, I'm actually Jenny Hill. And that's not the same guy? <laughs> Hayes and the new guy. I know you're very familiar with my work, Candy. Sure. So. <laughs> it's always nice to see her pop up because yeah. it's sparing. Yeah. It's sparing since And again, she's someone that she gets along with everybody. Like the fact that she's easily mixed with Jonah Hill can easily mix with. Drew Barrymore can easily mix with Tina Fey, like all these people, these different generational people. And she just is, you know, for someone that could be 
pretty distant, pretty icy, pretty difficult, given her background. She's none of those things, no. right? She's just this like very sweet, genuine person. Yeah, she has a somewhat serious delivery, but I, I, I it doesn't seem like she takes herself too seriously. And yeah, that, exactly. yeah that, that's yeah. so awesome. She also appeared in Justin Timberlake's Five Timers Club sketch uh, that was in season 38. Oh, Candace Bergen, the first female member of the Five Timers Club. And I would like to say something. I, too, wish we had a second bathroom, but while we're all sharing, could you please try to remember to leave the toilet seat down? Don't look at me. I didn't do it. I go in the sink. That was maybe, honestly, like the best Five Timers Club sketch. Uh, I've never, I'm an SNL geek, but I've never gone so far as to rank Five Timers Club sketches. But after, watch, <laughs> after watching it, I would have to say that that, that would be hard to top. Uh, that Justin yeah. Timberlake's in particular. So much was happening. He's, uh, Candace made an appearance. That was just such a, that was just such a really fun sketch. And then her most recent appearance February of 2022, John Mulaney joins the Five Timers Club, and uh, who do we see? Steve Martin, Paul Rudd, and we see Candy Bergen. Welcome to the Five Timers Club. Thank you, Candace. Wow, this place is amazing. Well, congratulations, John, and let me be the first person to say, who are you? <laughs> well, Candace, you wouldn't know me, but if you have a niece or a son who's bad at sports, they might. <laughs> So as a viewer, somebody who really enjoys Candace Bergen, who understands her history with SNL, what does it mean to you when you see her pop up on the show in current times? That it's, uh, you know, it has become, given that she was the first woman to host and the first woman to, to get it to the fifth time, I think it's a shorthand for the show about like, oh, we got the really legitimate five-timers here. Like there's a certain amount of, you know, notary republic, notary public, like uh, seal of approval. Like, yes, this is you're an officially accepted person because I am here, Candace Bergen. So obviously, this is like for real, right? Yeah, yeah, and I, I love when the show just acknowledges its history like that. That's why I love the five timers thing just in general. It's a good chance for the show to go back to its history. But when a, when somebody like Candace Bergen appears, like I said, sparingly. 2013 2018 2022 that's just to me acknowledging that lauren and the show still value their history and they still value the people who made the show what it was and candace i imagine that they included. really like each other yeah you know lauren, lauren michaels is fa partly famous for having a lot of famous friends and i think he probably <laughs> just they're friends yeah half of which are named paul <laughs> that's right that's right yeah, but Lauren, yeah, Lauren definitely seems like he, yeah, he, he has a lot of famous friends and he gets, he seems like he gets along with a lot of people and Candace seems very affable and yeah, you're, you're right. He and Candace probably, or Candy, that's what Lauren and a lot of people from the show uh, refer to her and that's, as. That is what, how people refer to her certainly in the 1970s, right? Or, yeah. yeah. So putting a bow on this, why don't you give your final case for Candace Bergen as an SNL Hall of Famer, just kind of sum it up. So I think the poll for me is not only is she there first in many ways, but her own development as a performer is mirrored a little bit by the show itself. And her, and you know, it's sort of like if you take it as a body of work, she goes from being just someone who is sort of like a, a variety show host to someone who's good at sketches to someone who is kind of like a host emeritus, somebody who gives 
weight to the idea of having hosted many times. And, um, you know, as Dave Letterman was famous for saying, longtime friend of the show, like, I think there is something to be said for that in terms of getting into the Hall of Fame. Just a genuine, generous, lovely person who I think always enriches the shows that she's in. And that's it. That's Maddie Price and our very own Thomas Senna describing why Candace Bergen should be included in the SNL Hall of Fame. So there's that. You know, I'm I'm of two minds here. I I'm with um I'm with Maddie that she belongs, but it's like 30 years ago she would have been a slam dunk. Slam dunk. I just wonder if too much time has passed at this point for there to be a cohort of people that will, you know, go to the wall for her. Uh, I, I, I think there should be, but I don't know that there will be. We will have to find out January 10th when voting opens. I am excited. I am truly excited. I'm also excited to introduce to you the sketch that we are playing for uh, Candace Bergen's inclusion in the SNL Hall of Fame. This is the Anne Boleyn sketch that uh, Maddie and uh, Thomas were talking about. So let's kick to that right now. Oh, Norfolk. Pray, what news of my beloved husband, the king? It bodes ill, your highness. The king demands your death. I feared as much. What manner of execution is it to be? The choosing is yours, my lady. How so, Norfolk? If you grant the king a divorce and renounce any claim to the throne, then you should be beheaded. If you do not, then you should be burned at the stake. After I am beheaded, what will happen to my head? <laughs> It will be placed on top of a wall for public display. People will be allowed to throw things at it in attempts to knock it off the wall. How many throws will each person get before another person gets to throw? Three. Will they be allowed to throw anything? Within reason. Would a rotten potato be considered reasonable? I'm afraid it would, madam. But I mean, a rarely rotten one, all mushy and such. And when my head is knocked off the wall, will the dirt and mud be brushed off my face before it is set back on the wall? I'm not sure, Your Grace. I will check it out. Thank you, Norfolk. I will leave you now to weigh your decision. Norfolk. Yes, madam. What if I grant the divorce... Pronounce the throne, but invoke the blessing of the Pope. Then you should be drawn and quartered by four large horses. <laughs> then the, qu- the quarters shall be drawn and quartered by four smaller horses. <laughs> then those quarters will be drawn and quartered by four frogs. <laughs> After that, the quartering 
would stop and the mincing would begin. I see. And my head? Your head would be placed on a pike. On a fish, Norfolk? No, Your Highness, a spike pike. Oh, Norfolk! What about the crows? Will they not attack my face? We would put a wire cage over your head. It would keep out the crows, but smaller birds would be able to shoulder the way through the bars. And I suppose yellow jackets could get through. Yes, madam. And June bugs. Yes, but June bugs really wouldn't do any harm. They just sort of crawl around on your face. Could a small scarecrow be attached to my forehead? Again, I will check into the matter, Your Highness. But now, I will take my leave. Norfolk. Yes, Your Highness. What if I just do everything they ask? In that case, your head will be chopped off, and then it will be shot out of a cannon. How many times? I'm not sure. It seems to be really arbitrary. And my body? It would be folded up and also shot out of a cannon. Would my head ever be shot at my body? It might, Your Grace. Yeah. And what happens to my head after that? It would be wrapped up like a present and sent anonymously to a stranger. The royal entourage would hide in the bushes to see the expression on the stranger's face when he opened it. Norfolk, you may inform the king I have made my decision. I will grant the divorce. I will renounce the throne and have my head cut off. Very well, madam. Now, is that the one where we put your head on the wall? I'm lost. Yes, yes, that's the one. I will take my leave now, Your Highness. Norfolk. Ah, oh, yes, Your Highness. The executioner. Is he skilled? Very skilled, madam. He has been sent for from Calais. I forgive you. six and a half hours and three axes and was one of the bloodiest in royal history. At one point, Anne Boleyn cried out that she would rather be burned at the stake, but it was decided to carry on. Later, 
her head was placed atop a pike, which swam away, never to be seen again. That is dynamite. That was dynamite. That's a great sketch. Um, I can't. Uh, uh, I, I can't argue with Maddie that uh, it's. You know, um, what did he call it? He called it Python worthy or Python ask or something along those lines. Uh, and yeah, I tend to agree. Um, very absurd and uh, wordy and uh, a lot of fun. And Candace Bergen is along for the ride. She is, uh, she's carrying some weight in this, in this one. So there's that. Uh, I want to thank Maddie Price for popping by today to regale us with tales of Candace Bergen uh, from uh, Matt Ardill and Thomas Senna. Thank you so very much. And please, on your way past the Weekend Update exhibit, won't you turn out the lights? Because the SNL Hall of Fame is now closed. Thanks for listening to the SNL Hall of Fame podcast. Make sure to rate, review, share, and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media at SNLHOF. This is Doug Denant saying, this is Doug Denant saying, see you next week. Podcasts and such.